Welcome to Sonic's Flight, the podcast devoted to all things Sonics. Sonic's Flight is a monthly podcast discussing current events, news, and topics of interest to the Sonics community. We aim to entertain and educate builders and pilots of Sonic's aircraft designs, inspiring them to complete and operate their aircraft safely and efficiently. Welcome, everyone, to the Sonic's Flight podcast. This is episode number 17. Reducing Sonic's Accidents. It's a bit of an unusual topic, and we're going to try and delve into the reasons why pilots, and specifically Sonic's pilots, run into trouble. We're going to tackle a really tough problem. How do we go about reducing the frequency and severity of accidents among Sonic's pilots? And although we're going to try to approach this topic with a Sonic's flavor, this is not really a unique discussion to the Sonic's fleet. This is something that affects all of us as pilots. So with that... We're going to skip all the other uh, news topics. We're going to delve right in. I'm your host. You guys all know me, Jeff Schultz. I'm builder and pilot of Sonic 604 and Sonic's 1374. Joining me first up is YX builder and pilot John Gillis. John is our resident experimenter and is best known for his custom modifications. John, uh, what have you been doing lately? Actually, I've been uh, getting my plane ready to fly again, uh, extended annual and I found myself out of annual, and so I just got myself recertified. So I'm ready to go flying this weekend. And they gave you that back. Huh? They they, uh, they didn't take the opportunity to to remove you from the pilot population. Despite me making my worst landings ever in a Cessna 175, <laughs> he said I was still safe to fly. All right. Well, and that plus a couple hundred dollars for the BFR. <laughs> well, yeah, that goes with that. Yeah. You know, I've often said that if you're going to do a flight review, you want to get your money's worth. And if you can make your instructor scream in terror, that's good entertainment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was just the, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, you know, and grabbing the yoke as I'm pancaking it in. So. Awesome. Got it done. We landed it. All right. Good Thanks, deal. Carl. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next up is uh, Gary Motley. Gary is a longtime pilot, a former CFI and has more than 500 hours on his AeroV-powered Sonics. Our guest for this episode is Joe Norris. Uh, you guys all know Joe. Joe has ratings in both airplanes and rotorcraft. He has a, uh, a wide list of qualifications. He's a technical counselor and a flight advisor. He's an AMP mechanic with an IA certificate. He's a certificated flight instructor, and is currently the chief flight instructor at the Experimental Aircraft Association. And, as if that's not enough, Joe has a long history with EAA, joining first as a member in the 70s, and then coming on as an employee later, uh, serving as an aviation services specialist, as the home builder community manager, and then work with the team on the electronic newsletter. He's got a background in aircraft refurb, and has a couple of different home building projects under his belt, and probably several major certified airplane refurb projects. And then lastly, in, in the capacity that I think many Sonics builders know him, Joe joined Sonics Aircraft several years ago and helped them develop and stand up their T-Flight transition training program. And uh, was with the company doing that for several years and other tasks, uh, miscellaneous duties as assigned, uh, until he uh, returned back recently to EAA. So in that capacity... Joe is probably uniquely qualified to discuss the ins and outs of flight training and then flight training as a, with a sonic spin on it. So with that, 
Joe, I set the bar really high. I, I think it's yeah, going to be a I'm, great I'm, talk. I don't know if I can jump that high, but we'll see. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, welcome. I look forward pre- to it. I appreciate that. I appreciate uh, having the opportunity to, to chat with you guys tonight. And I think it's a great topic and uh, something that we've all been talking about kind of, uh, you know, in groups and, and individually. And, and it's always been in the forefront of everybody's mind. We all try to learn from accidents, regardless of whether it's Sonics or whatever. And uh it's just good to uh, take time to really, really give some thought to what we might be able to do as pilots and as a community to uh, try to be our best pilots and, and uh, keep ourselves out of trouble as much as we can. All right. Well, let's jump right in. And uh, Joe, I'm going to kick it over to you. Um, just give us a, a brief look at your aviation background, uh, your history as an instructor, and then uh, a little bit with your, your time at Sonics. And I think that'll be a good stage setter for what we're going to talk about. Sure, sure. Um, became a flight instructor in, uh, I believe it was 1998, if I remember right. Um, initially in airplanes and then uh, not, not long after that in helicopters as well. Um, most of my instructing early on was, uh, giving tailwheel, uh, transition training. I did a little bit of primary instruction, but mostly tailwheel transition training and, uh, uh, flight reviews and that type of thing. And then also when I got into the helicopter instructing, that's where I really got my first taste of a lot of primary instruction, um, in that uh, respect. But a lot of my instruction in fixed wing aircraft, uh, even up to this time has been a lot of recurrent training, aircraft checkouts and uh, flight reviews. So uh, working with a lot of already certificated pilots with a variety of backgrounds uh, in the type of aircraft they flew and the amount of hours they've flown and uh, just kind of got a a good overall look at uh, the pilot population out there. And one thing that I found was very, very typical uh, when a pilot would come to me and ask me for uh, either recurrent training uh, in their own airplane or a flight review or possibly getting a checkout in a new airplane that they may be considering purchasing or have just purchased or whatever the case might be, um, is that, uh, as most of you probably realize, a lot of the flying that recreational pilots do is just either going around the pattern, giving rides, or maybe, you know, to a fly-in breakfast, or maybe a short uh, VFR trip here or there. Uh, And it was very, very common for those pilots to come to me, and I would ask them, for example, okay, we're going to go up and we're going to do some uh, maneuvers, Uh, we're going to do some slow flight, we're going to do some stalls, and we're going to do maybe some uh, emergency procedures, and we're going to come back and do some landings. And I'd ask them, well, when was the last time you did a stall? Sometimes I just get a blank look. Um, quite often it was uh, well on my last flight review. And in a couple of situations, it was, well, I don't know that I've done one since I got my certificate. So it's pretty obvious that pilots are not out there practicing anything outside the normal cruise type flying very often. Um, slow flight, other than what you do, slowing down to land in the pattern, uh, that's that's their slow flight practice. Um, so it was, even with pilots that flew fairly often, it was uh, very common for them not to have done anything other than just what you would consider your normal point-to-point uh, flying. So um, yeah, even, with, re- the, Joe, even with a pilot, pardon me? 
experience. Yeah, I'd have to say I, I agree with what you're saying. I found the same thing in my previous experience, too, when I was an active CFI. Sure. And I think every CFI will tell you the same story because I've never heard anybody tell me any different in other, uh, in, you know, talking with CFIs at, at flight instructor refresher clinics or whatever the case might be. It's just, it's just very common for pilots to be out there enjoying their plane and flying around, but they don't really give a lot of thought to uh, outside the box flying, flying slowly, steep turns, turns around a point, precision landings. Uh, I mean, I gave a flight review to a guy one time and we've got, you know, a 6,500 foot runway and an 8,000 foot runway here at Oshkosh. So it's, you know, from a practical standpoint, it's not real critical where you touch down uh, at, at this airport. But I finally had to ask this guy, you know, are you ever going to maybe come close to the numbers one of these times? You know, because you might be going into a short strip sometime where it is important for you to pick a spot and hit that spot and be able to perf- make the airplane perform in that fashion. And, and he never even gave it a thought. It was not even in his reference that he might have to be that precise with an airplane because every place he went was always big, long, flat, you know, paved runways. And so that's fine if that truly is the only place you ever go. But, you know, you may be forced to go someplace not with a great big, long, flat, paved runway someday. So, uh, you know, so we had a lot of work to do to get his mind working to the point where he could fairly precisely put the airplane where he wanted it or where I wanted to see him put it. So in the case of this topic, that's really the whole point of this topic. Exactly. And that's I guess that's where I was leading that to is the fact that, you know, you need to be able to understand your airplane and its performance enough so that that day comes when you need to put it on a spot in a field or on a road or on a runway or wherever you've got to be able to do that without having to stop and think about it because you don't have time to stop and think about it when the bell rings you know yeah so what we're really talking about is is finding a way to to not just do the same old things in the same old kind of normal flying rut but to get out and practice some of those peripheral skills that really are going to save your butt and and directly lead to some of this reducing accidents that we're talking about. Right. It'll certainly help. And, you know, you talk about doing the same thing over and over again. Uh, When I was working at a flight school, uh, just before I I, uh, went to work for Sonics, I was working for a flight school that gave primary training and uh, tailwheel training in J3 Cubs. And we had a fellow come to the school one day and he had taken lessons at a local airport in a 172 and his basic, and I don't remember the exact number he gave, but in general, his, his comment was, I've got 350 hours in a 172. I know pretty much all there is to know about 172s. And <laughs> I didn't say this, but I give the, uh, another instructor that was air credit. He said, you don't have 370 hours. You've got the same hour 370 times. Right. Absolutely. And it's true because that's what they're doing. They're doing the same thing over and over and over again. And they probably get pretty good at that particular uh, mode of flight. But, you know, you're not going outside that real comfort zone and really learning about the capabilities of the airplane as much as you you should be or could be uh, just in case that day comes when you do have to get yourself out of trouble someplace along the line. Well, Joe, um, let's uh, let's hit some of your history with Sonics. And then we'll start breaking this down uh, piece by piece. Sure, sure. Uh, I started with Sonics in uh, February of uh, 2013. Uh, Jeremy came to me and asked me uh, about the uh, T-Flight training program. They were really considering doing that and uh, asked me if I 
could help them get that program going. And, and fortunately, with my previous experience at EAA, uh, I had some contacts down at the uh, Milwaukee uh, Flight Standards Office, and so I was able to get hooked up with a fella down there who was enthusiastic about what Sonics was trying to do. And uh, we submitted the paperwork uh, in, I think it was late February, or early March of uh, uh, 2013 uh, to, to apply for the uh, letter of deviation authority that would allow us to set up the program. And we had the letter in our hands uh, in early May. So, I mean, which is lightning speed for an FAA office to, to respond in that regard. So uh, put the program together, uh, got it going and uh, had, you know, really good years. The first year we flew, you know, lots of hours, lots of, uh, uh, customers. The second year was just as busy as the first and the third year was a little bit slower. Uh, and then last year was the last year that I was there and it was much slower. I think that's part of it is we just kind of caught up with the pent up demand to a certain extent. And maybe, you know, as, as kit planes go, it might've just been a lull in people finishing airplanes. It's, it's hard to tell what the dynamic was there, but the, the hours did fall off a bit last year, but, uh, we did a lot of flying, you know, we did, uh, 300 and some hours of duel over that time uh, in a variety of, of uh, people who were builders, people who were buying an airplane. And of course, some were just uh, uh, introductory lessons where they were just considering building a Sonics and, and wanted to try it, you know, try before they buy kind of a thing. So a pretty broad spectrum of, of potential uh, builders or builders or customers there. So 350 hours at five hours a person, uh, you know, that's 70, 75 people that came to that's a, that's Well, it's a more than percentage. that. Well, it's, yeah, it's more than that because most of the customers came and, and did uh, two hours. Some did three, a few did five. I had a couple that did 10 because that's what their insurance company required them to do. Um, so, I mean, it was a variety and, and there was a lot of half hour, uh, what we called our uh, introductory lessons in there. So uh, for, you know, per, for uh, prospective customers. So uh, it was, a, it was a variety of times per customer, um, but it was about 50 customers a year over those first three years. And then, it, like I say, it dropped off a little bit last year, but. Uh, Joe, how does this compare with like what Vans does? Cause I know they do a lot of customer introductory flights and things. You know, I really don't know, to be honest with you. I've never really compared notes with anybody else. I was just kind of doing the thing at Sonics there and, and never really got a chance to compare that with anybody else in the industry and see what was going on. But still, if if you did uh, a couple hundred builders, you know, out of the entire population, that's a sizable percentage it's, of the population. Exactly. Yeah, it was a, it was a good uh, a good cross section of builders. A uh, good cross section of people, ba uh, background and experience. Uh, you know, total times were all over the board. Uh, ages were uh, uh, actually pretty all over the board. You know, a number of people were re retired uh, folks that were, you know, as as our industry works. You know, they've got the money and they've got the time, and now they're gonna, you know, fulfill their dream of building and flying an airplane. So there was a lot of. Uh, you know, retired or semi-retired people, but I had quite a few young people too, and people just got out of the military. And, and so it was an interesting, uh, interesting mix of, of customers to work with. They've had uh, probably about uh, maybe 15% of them were, were ladies and the rest were gentlemen, but uh, um, you know, pretty good cross-section of the building community. 
Yeah, if you had fifteen percent, that's higher than the the normal average for for female pilots. That's good. Yeah, it was it was it was a, a fair amount of of customers who it was a husband and wife or boyfriend girlfriend thing that were you know going to fly the airplane together or or own the airplane together or build the airplane together, whatever it might have been. So a lot of the, usually when there was a usually I'm saying when there was a uh, a lady pilot involved, there was usually a gentleman along with her. Yeah, well, that's still that's excellent. Um, that that's making a a, a a statistical impact in uh, in the population of Sonics pilots. So, the the the, the thing I noticed though, um, in general, in the Sonic, and this is again true of all home builds because uh, you know in my previous life as the home builders community manager at EAA here a number of years ago I talked to a lot of builders and the, the story is the same and and you fellas have all heard it too you know I've been building this thing for x many years and I haven't done a lot of flying or haven't done any flying so unlike the general population where you have, have a, a pilot come to you once a flight review and they maybe have flown 10 hours in the last year or maybe 50 hours in the last year maybe more maybe less a lot of the sonics builders were coming to me and saying you know i haven't really flown an airplane since i started building this thing and so uh, i always encourage them hey go down to your local airport get in a, an airplane with an instructor for a couple hours and just get the brain working again about general flying, you know, patterns and radio communications and all the just general stuff that you do before you come and try to learn a brand new airplane, because otherwise your learning curve is going to be so steep because you're going to be brushing some heavy rust off of your general pilot skills and trying to learn an airplane, which is probably totally unlike anything else you've flown in your background, unless you happen to be a, a light sport or a, or a home built pilot. Uh, before that, uh, a lot of lot of pilots came and they were pretty overwhelmed at first, uh, just because they were just trying to drink from the fire hose. Joe, that same topic uh, kind of came up when we were talking about aerobatic training. Uh, the idea that don't go to an aerobatics instructor being rusty, uh, where he's got to teach you, he's got to catch you up on the basics of stalls, slow flight. Go practice that on your own. Do your homework before you show up and get your money's worth on on the hardcore instruction. Exactly. Yep. And that's, I, I always encouraged my uh, Sonics customers to do that. Most of them did, a few didn't, and it ended up costing them some extra money uh, and time with me just because we had to get them up to speed so that they could safely fly the airplane when they left Sonics to go home and fly their airplane that they just bought or just finished or whatever the case might be. Um, and, and it did, uh, you know, it, they definitely... When they left, they understood why I told them that to begin with, and they were sorry that they hadn't done as I suggested. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's let's delve into the the Sonics aspect. Um, I, I want to just set something up to kind of frame the conversation here. So to put to put our conversation in perspective, uh, Sonics accidents are not really that different than any other accident for any other type of airplane, GA, other home builds. They're they're no real they're not really any worse or any better. It just kind of falls within the same overall trends. So if we're talking about a, a specific thing that's going on in the Sonics fleet, people don't don't need to get the wrong idea. We're not we're not sounding an alarm bell. We're not trying to to say that there's something that's abnormal here. This is just this is the world that that we live in. You know, flying Sonics airplanes. Let's just keep that in mind. Uh, these these topics, these themes, they apply across the board. We just want to tailor them for our particular airplane. Absolutely, that's absolutely correct. All right, so 
thinking back over the last few months, uh, there have been some recent Sonics accidents that have been uh, in conversation. They've been talked about on the Sonics Builders group. Um, just to kind of catch us up, um, the ones that come to mind readily. Um, just recently, we had we had a Xenos. I mean, within the last few days, we had a Xenos that had some sort of landing incident. We had uh, a Sonics that was on final, perhaps that uh, was reported to possibly have been on fire, crashed into an apartment building. We had the Big Bear Lake crash at, at high density altitude that we talked about in a previous show. And then, of course, we've had some discussion on the factory accidents with with those two airplanes. So there, if you look at the case-by-case, the case, these are all over the map. Landing accidents, potentially in-flight emergencies that brought the airplane down, um, Performance issues, like at high density altitude, distractions, perhaps stall spin, perhaps. So there, there's a there's a cross section, and I think it kind of follows the normal trends that you see in, in any fleet. Uh, so I don't want to spend a whole lot of time peeling back any one particular accident. What I really want to do is is try and and get to the heart of the trends that we're seeing. So you already kind of hit on this, Joe, but. But break it down from a pilot proficiency and then a specifically a sonics proficiency. What trends have you identified through hours and hours of, of training? Sure. Um, you know, the, the number one thing that I've seen across the board, and this is just not sonics pilots, but this is uh, pilots in every kind of airplane that I've given instruction in, is when you are... You know, when you simulate uh, an emergency on takeoff, which is, I think everybody agrees, is the most inopportune time to have a problem because your, your options are, are, are few. Um, you're climbing out. Airspeed is fairly low. Power requirements are high. Um, altitude is low. And something happens. All right. The engine coughs. The engine quits. Whatever the case might be. The first thing you have to do, if you don't do anything else, the first thing you have to do is get the nose down and keep the airplane flying, okay? And people just don't do it. I have had, I don't know how many customers I'll be flying with, and I'll be flying out. And, I mean, I'm careful. I'm not going to do something dumb, but I'll pull the power back, maybe partially or whatever, and say, okay, what's going on? And they'll just sit there and kind of look at you like, what are you doing that now for? <laughs> it's like... First thing you got to do before you even look at me like I'm crazy is you got to get the nose down and pilots just don't do it. Uh, they, and you know, you hear that, you hear it, you hear it, fly the airplane, fly the airplane, fly the airplane. And that is the, that's the, you know, that's the cornerstone of all accident uh, prevention is first and foremost, keep the airplane under control. And it's really amazing to me, the amount of pilots that will Either they forget that instantly or they just fight the urge somehow. They think that pulling back on the stick is going to help them where pushing forward on the stick is really what they need to do. That's that's job one right there. And that's the thing I think that has caused more problems with people on takeoffs. You know, trying to get back to the airport's one thing, but just keeping the airspeed where it belongs before you even think about trying to get back to the airport is that's job one. And it's a job that's that's sorely lacking in, in people doing it. So, Joe, why do you think that is? Is this it's not a trained response or is this a fundamental like lack of training? Like what, what do you think is going on here? It could be both. Um, but I I really think, you know, your airplane's low to the ground. And, you know, if you push the nose down to keep the speed up, you're going to be looking at the trees. 
um, or the buildings or the swamp off the end of the runway or whatever it is, you're not going to be looking at the sky anymore like you normally do when you're climbing out on takeoff. And I think that that just stops some people in their tracks and they think I shouldn't be looking at the ground now. I got to keep the nose up. Well, no, you don't. <laughs> you got to keep the airplane flying. And if that means you're going to go into those trees, I'd rather go into those trees under control at just above stall speed than to go into those trees, uh, you know, inverted because you stalled the airplane just above them trying to pull the nose up. So, uh, you know, and, and I know we talk about it and talk about it and talk about it, but I actually was, had the opportunity to speak to a gentleman one time that survived a stall spin accident. And he told me, uh, he got beat up pretty good and the airplane was, was wrecked, but he, he survived it. And, and he talked to me and he said, you know, when the trees start rushing up at you in your mind, your training tells you, you got to keep the airplane flying, but he said, you can't stop yourself from pulling back on the stick. He, or at least he couldn't stop. It. He said he knew he shouldn't be doing it at the same time. He couldn't stop himself. So uh, there's a little bit of a survival instinct where you don't want to hit those trees and you just keep doing everything that, you know, instinctually that you think will help you avoid that. And sometimes you just got to overcome those, those real basic instincts. And remember, I got to keep the thing under control or else I'm really going to be in trouble. So Joe, if, if this is a base fear survival instinct that kicks in, the only way you're going to conquer that is to, is to do your, your training, ingrain that behavior and think it through well in advance. Cause you're not going to be able to sort it all out in the heat of the moment. Absolutely. Yep. And, and again, that's another thing where people don't get recurrent training often enough and the recurrent training they're getting, I think that's one of the places where our recurrent training is lacking a little bit. Cause I mean, I even know other instructors, I mean, how many times on a flight review do you simulate a, a power loss on takeoff? You know, a lot of people just don't even think about that. And it's one of the places where it is the most critical time to have a conditioned reaction where you will do the right thing basically without thinking about it. So it's, it's a, it's a critical time that I think needs more attention in our, our, our basic training and in our recurrent training. Gary, um, think back to your instruction days. Uh, how did you see this trend playing out with your students? Uh, well, I, I was very fortunate in the fact that um, my early instructors when I was learning to fly were good, solid instructors that, that drove that into me. They, we did uh, a, a fair number of emergency procedures where we were having, you know, issues on takeoff and what do you do and where are you going to go? And, and we, we kind of drilled that into my mind early. So I was very fortunate in that regard, but I honestly don't think that that is happening with primary instruction as often as we'd like it to be. That's just, that's just my feeling. And I haven't, I have, other than my experience a few years ago down at uh, Cub Air when I was given primary instruction down there, um, I haven't been involved in the primary instruction uh, market for a while. So, uh, but I have, in the flight reviews I've been giving, I haven't seen a lot of change in response from newer pilots. So I'm still thinking that this might be a place where our, our basic in, uh, primary training could use a little bit of uh, uh, of a look to see if we're actually covering that topic uh, adequately. Jeff, were you asking me that question as well? Yeah, Gary, uh, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I would echo a lot that Joe says. Uh, you know, I might take it a little bit farther. I, I'll even give you an example of one of my relatively recent VFRs when I was going to get my VFR done. And this was done by a well-known uh, aerobatic instructor pilot as well, 
ex-Air Force instructor and all that kind of good stuff. We were flying a Satabria. And he did what Joe did uh, to me. We, were, we had taken off. We had a little bit of elevation. And, and he pulled the throttle. And, you know, it got quiet all of a sudden. And I, it took me a second or two. And I'm kind of looking around and kind of thinking about it. And then all of a sudden, he kind of jumps on the controls and instinctively pushed the nose down. And he started asking, I actually, actually, honestly, he started berating me a little bit why I was a little bit more quicker about it. Well, again, there's two things. One, there's always the, the pilot startle factor that's going to be that's going to be in effect. But I think in this particular case, it, it depends on how how tuned you are to the aircraft and everything that's going on. You know, in the instance that he pulled the throttle in my particular case, I was well aware that I had plenty of excess airspeed already. So from my perspective, I was going to you know, hoard my altitude to give myself a little bit of additional time to either try to do some troubleshooting or look for an, an excellent or at least a good landing spot. So, I, you know, I would say, you know, getting the nose down or at least controlling airspeed above minimal controllable airspeed is, is, is certainly a key factor and has to be done in all circumstances. But I think it goes back to Joe that if, if the pilot spent more time doing the unusual attitudes, recovery, steep turns, the stalls, power on, power off, minimal airspeed, I, I feel as if they get much more in tune with the aircraft, not only with, with reading tachometer readings and airspeed readings, but you feel the aircraft, you hear the noise of the slipstream, uh, you get a sense of you know airplane shutter if you're close to the stall. So you can attune to a lot of those other things without necessarily having knee-jerk reactions uh, um, that can get you into trouble. So, Yeah, that's a great, great comment. It's very, very true. Um, and that's especially true in the Sonics. Um, I had a lot of customers come to fly with me in the Sonics that were uh, pretty much numbers people. I mean, a lot more instrument pilots. They were used to reading instruments. Uh, and they were depending more on what they saw on the instrument panel than what they saw out the window or felt in their the truly the seat of their pants. And um, I literally found them to become much smoother and much better pilots in the Sonics once I covered up the instrument panel altogether and made them listen to those sounds and see those sight pictures and feel what that wing was doing. And it didn't really take them long. Once I broke them of the habit of worrying about the numbers and I just, I literally just covered up the whole instrument panel. I said, okay, we talked about the sight pictures in our ground session before we come up here to fly. Let's just go ahead and fly it by sight picture and listen and see what you're going to do. And almost universally, within just a few minutes of flying or the airplane without reference to the instrument panel, they smoothed out their turns became better coordinated. Their turns became better at holding altitude. I mean, the whole thing just worked. I mean, the Sonics is, is a real eyes out of the cockpit airplane. And uh, a lot of pilots just don't have that in their mind either, because unfortunately today, a lot of primary training is done in, in very highly instrumented airplanes. And a lot of instructors kind of automatically think everybody wants to be an airline pilot and they train them in that respect. And so you spend too much time with your eyes inside the cockpit and all the pretty gauges on these new electronic panels kind of force you to look at them a little more anyway. And uh, you really need to spend a little bit of time just feeling what the airplane's doing and what the airplane's telling you. Yeah, absolutely. I I'll submit that if, uh, if you're not comfortable doing exactly that in flight, turn off your EFIS, cover up your instruments. If you're not comfortable doing that, 
then you may need to go back and challenge your own level of proficiency because that attitude reference out the out the window should be your primary way of controlling the airplane. And if you're not there, you might want to go and, and attack that in a training. Exactly. We, we've talked about that. Um, some of the other instructors and I around this area have always talked about uh, primary is outside, secondary is instruments, not the other way around until you become an instrument pilot. And that, of course, is a different genre altogether but uh you know in any of your vfr flying i don't care whether you're flying a sonics or a piper cub or the satabra or decathlon or whatever it is um eyes out of the cockpit is going to serve you well so i'll take it a step further and we actually touched on the same idea in the aerobatics show um it, if you as a pilot you're honest about assessing your own level of proficiency if you think about these areas and you have that twinge of apprehension you know, turning off your instruments and flying visually, flying slow flight, doing a turning stall. If these things cause you to be a little bit worried, and if somebody was to say, hey, let's go, let's go do that in the airplane, and you think, oh, I don't know, I don't really want to do that, you might need to really challenge yourself to go back and get some retraining because you shouldn't have that apprehension. If you're proficient, you know how to do it, and you're ready to go execute it. Well, yeah, I, and, you know, I've actually come across um, a larger number of pilots than I would like that are literally afraid to do a stall in an airplane. And I'm, you know, yeah, some airplanes, you need to be concerned about it because of the, that particular airplane's characteristics. But if you're up in a Sonics or a Cub or a, a Cherokee or a Cessna 150 or whatever, there's nothing about a stall that should scare you. I mean, and I think part of that is they were not introduced to it properly in their primary training. So that's probably a training issue that they have to overcome. But, but I've actually even had a couple of instructors that really didn't like to do stalls and that, amazed me totally but it, those people are out there so um there are some people that a little bit of additional training would do them some good well if we're going to speak more to sonic specific i really never found an indication that sonics was not giving me a lot of early warnings that something bad was about to happen so you know in that particular case i think we're fairly fortunate with the sonics and recovery yeah. is so straightforward anyway, uh, even uh, even with protracted uh, spins, for example, it recovers very easily, very predictably. Absolutely. I, I, I always enjoyed taking customers up and, and letting them, you know, because if you approach a stall gradually, you can literally feel the steps. I mean, it's smooth airflow, then there's just a little vibration and a little bit more vibration, then a true buffet, and then finally it'll break. But I mean, it's it's talking to you that whole time. And if you can't feel that and realize something's going on, you are really asleep at the wheel, literally. And the very mushy controls. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The sound. I mean, the airplane's quiet. The controls are getting mushy. The wing is starting to, you know, as my one instructor friend says, the monkeys are starting to dance on the wing. You know, you can feel their footsteps. And uh, it's just, uh, uh, it's a very, very communicative airplane with with docile handling characteristics. So yeah, the uh, only thing missing is a slap on the side of your head from the CFI. <laughs> exactly, and I have occasionally that came too, but that's a different story. <laughs> All right, Joe. Um, what other trends did you did you notice when you were doing uh, either regular instruction or or T flight instruction? We talked about you know the the trained response. We talked about recognizing stall. What other trends? Um, mostly, uh, just precision. And I don't mean, you know, to the nth degree, but so many pilots get in the airplane and you tell them, well, let's climb up to 2,500 feet and they overshoot it by 300 feet. And then they try to get back on and then they're under it by 200 feet and they're just kind of wallowing through the air and they just don't, you don't think about 
being precise. And, you know, if you're just out riding around on a nice sunny day in your Cub or in your Sonics or whatever, maybe it isn't that important, you know, but precision will help you in those times when, when times get rough, you know, airspeed control, altitude control, all of that stuff is something that someday may make or break an emergency situation for you. So I, I just think general sloppiness, if you will, a uh, lack of attention to detail is, is, is rampant in the, uh, the general aviation pilot community. At least that's what I've seen. Yeah. And when you say talking about me, and joe when you say airspeed and altitude control what that really kind of boils down to is attitude control and that will exactly exactly yep when you're out cross-country flying and you have a problem and yeah maybe you got enough altitude you can play around do a little uh troubleshooting or whatever but if it becomes apparent that um you're gonna put the airplane on the ground and you you know pick that spot that you're gonna go to a couple of miles an hour one way or the other may just be the determining factor whether you make it into that field or whether you don't and that's all about airspeed control which is attitude control so um it's just instilling that kind of you know with, without hammering hammer me over the head it's just a, a thing where you almost should take pride in in achieving that level of, of command of the airplane. Yes, I can glide this airplane at 80 miles an hour for, you know, the time it takes to get down to an emergency field or whatever it might be. Um, it just, to me, I always thought of that as something that was kind of a badge of honor that I could do that. Um, and other pilots I know are the same way, but a lot of pilots I've flown with just don't have that, don't have that, uh, that in their mind that they, that they need to be that precise. And, and maybe in a lot of their flying, they don't, but when the chips are down and if you can do that without really having to think about it, because you do it all the time, that's going to be a real benefit for you. Okay. Any other trends that, um, that you can think back and, and recognize? Uh, the only thing I ran into in the Sonics was just because the airplane is such a, well, it's a wonderful flying airplane as, as you folks all know, just over controlling the airplane, using their muscles instead of their finesse. You know, they, a lot of pilots get in the Sonics and they're, they're just forcing it all over the sky instead of setting back and, and just guiding the airplane where they want it to go. Uh, you know, my, my, one of my early flight instructors taught me it's pressures, not movements on the controls, you know, just be gentle. You don't need to manhandle the airplane. You're not driving a truck. You're flying an airplane and it, it kind of, it knows how to fly. All you have to do is guide it where you want it to go. And you don't need to be a muscle man to do that. Just be gentle, be, be grab, be smooth. And, uh, a lot of pilots just, they don't, they haven't developed that finesse, or at least certainly not in an airplane with lighter control forces like a Sonics has. Well, and I think that that becomes really apparent in an emergency situation um, where you really do. That's the point where you really need to be finessing the airplane and not muscling it around. Absolutely. And Joe, um, when you're doing T-flight, how long do people typically take to adjust to the, the, the handling characteristics? Um, you know, it was a little bit depending on the individual, uh, you know, how much experience they had and what variety of experience they had. You know, I always found that just in general with pilots, you know, that when you learn to fly, you learn to fly in a particular airplane. And then the first time you transition into something new, it's a big step for you. The second time you transition into something newer yet, it's a little bit less of a big step. And the third time and the fourth time and the fifth time and the more different airplanes you fly, the easier it is to go from one to the other, just because you're, you now you understand that there are differences and, and you kind of know how to respond to them. So it, it really depends on the pilot 
and what their background was. But in most cases, regardless of what pilot came to me, I could make them pretty safe in the airplane in two hours of instruction, maybe three. Um, a couple of folks took a little bit more. Uh, and, and of course, there were a number of people that, you know, were, were good right out of the box because they had experience that was applicable directly and, and they picked up on it right away. But most pilots, I mean, I, I felt pretty comfortable after the second hour that this particular customer, whoever it might have been, was going to be safe. I mean, they might be, they may not be super polished, but they were safe in the airplane. They, they understood what they were doing and they were getting the, the, the proper signals from the airplane and reacting into them properly. And they were starting to get that feel to where they were smoothing everything out. And it really just started feeling good. So, you know, a couple hours was good. Three hours was better. Five hours was almost too much for most pilots. I mean, a couple of pilots came that needed five hours just because their insurance said so. And the last two hours were just repetition of what we'd already done just because they needed the time. And they really didn't need any more instruction necessarily because um, they, they really had it pretty well under control at that point. So if a couple of hours is, um, is a good planning factor for pilots that maybe fly with a friend and before they fly their own or they get specific instruction or do a T-flight, they're doing the right thing, kind of preparing themselves for that. But what about the second owner who buys it on a Saturday and tries to fly it home on a Sunday? Yeah, that is a, that's the one that we really need to, to, to try to drive home to those people that, you know, this isn't, uh, unless you're already flown a Sonics or a Sonaray or maybe an RV or, you know, a couple of the light sport designs that have similar control feel. If you've got that background, you might be able to do it safely. But if you're jumping out of a 172 or uh, even a Citabra or something uh, and you jump into Sonics, you're going to get your eyes open pretty quickly. It's a different animal. And uh, it's easy to get in trouble if you if you try to do that without any kind of introduction to the airplane at all, either from a friend or maybe from the person you're buying it from, you'll go up with them for an hour after, as you're making the deal and do something to get some kind of an idea of what that airplane looks like, uh, a sight picture and what it feels like on the controls before you just jump in it yourself and try to fly it. And again, th this is not necessarily a Sonic specific comment. This is when you're flying a different airplane, it probably is a good idea to go get some instruction in that unique type. Absolutely. I mean, we always talk about the fact that, uh, you know, in the experimental airplane world, home builds, uh, exhibition airplanes, whatever it might be, there's two different first flights. There's the first flight of that airframe. There's also the first flight of that pilot in the airframe, and those can be the same event or they can be two separate events, and a lot of times that's better to make them two separate events. Get that pilot comfortable in a similar type, which is what we were doing with T-Flight, uh, before they, you know, so that that first flight of that particular airframe isn't also the first flight of that pilot in that type, because that's a, that's a combination where you got a lot of stuff stacked against you. Yeah. Okay, well, um, let's uh, let's just kind of pull that thread just a little bit more in the T flight. So, what does the uh, what does the training syllabus really kind of focus on in T flight? And what I'm thinking is, if somebody uh, if somebody's coming to T flight, that's great. But if they're not and they're kind of thinking, I got to do this on my own, what are the key areas that they need to kind of build their own syllabus around? Mm -hmm. One of the things I've and it. The Sonics is, it has some unique personality traits, um, uh, and it depends on whether it's a tri-gear or a tailwheel airplane. Um, 
in, in the Trigear airplane, the, the personality trait that a lot of people had trouble with was the fact that uh, you have to rotate the airplane to get it to fly. It doesn't fly off the ground real readily on its own just because it sits very flat on the gear. It doesn't have any deck angle to the wing um, to really get lift going. So you roll down the runway and you've got to rotate the airplane a little bit. Um, get the nose up a little bit so that that wing gets a little bit of an angle of attack and uh, will fly. And uh, that's where that touch on the controls comes in. A pilot gets in there that's not flown an airplane with light control forces before, and I tell them, okay, you got to rotate the airplane. And no matter how many times you tell them, that first time they do it, what do they do? They suck the stick back in their belly, and all of a sudden the airplane rotates, and that's why we've got a tail skid underneath the rudder on a tri-gear airplane, because you can bang the tail on the ground pretty easy doing that. They just don't realize that it's a light touch, even at that flight regime, you know, so they need to know the characteristics of the airplane. And the, and the opposite is true on the tailwheel airplane. When you land a tailwheel Sonics, unlike your Cub or your Satabria or your Champ, you don't end up with the stick all the way back in your belly. You end up holding the airplane at three-point attitude and letting it fly itself onto the ground. So you need to have the sight picture of a three-point attitude. How do you get that? You sit in the airplane looking over the nose with the airplane face down the taxiway so that you can see, okay, where does that horizon cut across that nose when I'm sitting on all three wheels? That's the picture you want to see when you touch down. And if you just keep pulling the stick back, the tailwheel is going to be two or three feet lower than the main gears when you touch down. And that's the airplane will take it, but it's not a pretty landing. So, um, you know, there's some certain things you need to know that are unique to the Sonics that if you don't know those things, your first couple of takeoffs and landings are going to be pretty exciting. Joe, that's probably worth reiterating. And I've heard you say this before. When you're in the airplane, use that opportunity to burn that sight picture into your brain. Most people will think that and then immediately forget it and discard it. But but really, that that's probably one of the biggest things you can do to improve your landings, not even on a first yeah. flight. Yeah, and the other thing is, for all of the uh, legacy Sonics builders, which most of us still are, uh, you know, there's just a few B models being built, but the legacy Sonics is probably one of the very, very few airplanes any pilot will ever fly where the sides are not parallel in the cockpit area. The airplane tapers from the back of your shoulders all the way to the nose. So when you're sitting in the airplane going straight down the runway, the, the side of the airplane, the canopy rail or the top lingeron is not parallel to the edge of the, of the taxiway or the edge of the runway. And almost every pilot I flew with in the Sonics would end up trying to land the airplane with the nose cocked off to the left if they're sitting in the left seat. Because subconsciously in the peripheral vision, they're lining up that top lingeron with the edge of the runway and they're thinking they're straight and they're not. And so that's the other sight picture you have to drill into your head. Okay. Where's the horizon on the nose when I'm touching down in a tailwheel airplane and what is straight ahead? What does straight ahead really look like? And that's, that's a totally different sight picture in a Sonics than it is in any other airplane you'll fly. Well, you just explained every landing I've had in the last 300 hours. Well, that's, that's a really common thing. And the other thing that uh, a lot of pilots do, and I think this is true of any time you're flying an airplane for the first couple of times, is they tend to flare the airplane too high when they're in their landing approach. They're, they're coming down final and they start their round out too early because, A, the Sonic sits fairly low to the ground. It's not a real tall airplane. But the thing they don't realize is that unlike your Bonanza or your Cherokee even, or your Cessna 172, when you start raising the nose in one of those airplanes, the airplane will settle a little bit and then finally round out and get parallel to the ground. So the Sonics is so instantly responsive that when you start raising the nose, it quits descending. 
It just, okay, I'm going to level off right here. That's what you told me to do. Well, most pilots do that about 10 feet in the air on their first few landings. And that's way too high. You don't want to be getting slow and letting the thing fall out from under you up there. So that's another thing where that sight picture sitting on the ground. Okay. what straight ahead look like? Where's that nose on the horizon? And how high am I off the ground while I'm sitting here? Those are the things that you, uh, pilots just don't spend enough time. Just like what we call chair flying the airplane, just sit in the airplane, push it out on the taxiway in front of your hangar. Um, a longer taxiway is better to really help you get that sight picture, but just sit in there and just soak in that, that picture that you see out the nose of the airplane. Joe, I'm going to, I'm going to throw a question at you that is something that I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about and I don't really have a good answer. And, and that is, how do you practice the skills that you're you're really going to need in a Sonics? Well, all you have access to is your typical GA training airplane. How do you do that? Yeah, um, that's a good question. And, you know, you can't duplicate a Sonics in a Cherokee or a Cessna 150 or whatever. But you can work on those skills that I, we talked about just a little while ago about precision flying. And I'm not talking about, you know, absolute precision, but I'm talking about, okay, if you want to glide the airplane at, at 70 miles an hour you don't want to be from 60 to 80 you want to be from you know 71 to 73 or to 70 69 or right around you know you want to be on that number as much as you can and you want to see what that looks like and feel what that looks like and just work on okay i need to be more in tune with what my airplane is doing and that i think in just as a general concept um attitude flying looking out the window being in tune with with, with what the airplane is telling you without staring at the instruments all of those things are going to bode well for you when you get into something that performs like a Sonics performs. Gary, we've talked about this before. Um, what do you think? What are, what are the key things to practice in any airplane that are really going to make you money in a Sonics? Um, I would go with probably two things. One is slow flight, minimal controllable airspeed. Because um, when you set up for that, you, you know, first of all, you're really in the mindset for it. And you really get down at that spot where you can feel how mushy the controls are. You start to hear the change in the, in the, in the slipstream changes. And if you really spend quite a bit of time in that minimal controllable airspeed, slow flight regime, I think you get a really good handle on, on, on what the Sonic's going to do at the very last moment. Uh, the second thing is what Joe has already noted and what I noticed previously, too, is uh, people just will not do stalls. Um, you know, if they do stalls, they were always doing just the imminent stalls, you know, where they get a horn. We don't have a horn. Uh, or you might get just the slightest bit of a, of a, of a burble on the tail surface and they, they would go to recover. And I would say, no, let's, let's hold it. Let's do full stalls. Let's get the nose to actually break. Or actually, as we talked about it before in our aerobatic session, keep it in a full stall uh, as as the, the falling leaf maneuver, Joe, and just keep controlling directional control with the rudder. If if they'll just do those two, you know, the the power off, full power off stalls, full stalls, and practice minimal controllable airspeed, I think that would get them through a, a great deal of, of the difficulties. Yeah, good points. And and combine what you just said with what I just said before that, and that's talking about precision flying. Okay, fly the airplane at 60 miles an hour and maintain your altitude. 
What do you need to do to do that? You got to work with with attitude and you got to work with power and you got to coordinate those things so that the airplane stays at the speed at the altitude you want. And that's just well, great. Um, that's why I like the minimal control. Of yeah, exactly. It's great technique. It's just great technique. And that'll, I don't care whether you're flying a Sonics or, you know, a, a, an Apache or, you know, name an airplane that a lot of general aviation pilots fly. Those skills will help you all the time. John, uh, thinking back to your training, when you were getting ready to fly your YX, so you, you were doing a lot of things all at once. You were you were brushing up proficiency. You were doing tailwheel training. You were getting uh, probably your first exposure to a sporty handling airplane. When you think about that, what do you think really made you the most money getting ready to fly your airplane? The best thing I ever did was I right before I flew, I rented a light sport uh, Gobosh with my flight instructor and went down to the airport that I was going to do my first flight at. And we did emergency procedures. We basically said, okay, this plane just quit. The engine quit on, on, uh, on takeoff. Where, where are you going to put it? So I had a good sight picture of all my emergency landing areas. Um, we took it up and, you know, we obviously did, you know, slow flight and stalls and things at the time. There, there wasn't any Sonics uh, flight transition training, and so I was kind of left to, to simulating it with another aircraft. But um, my flight instructor was really good at, about uh, teaching me about the plane could stop flying at any time, or the engine could stop at any time, and you have to deal with it right now. Um, I was driven to coming up with, okay, we're 500 feet up, we're at, uh, at climb speed, engine stops. What, what are your options? Okay, I have 45 degrees from either side. Pick your landing spot. Okay, we're at 1,000 feet. We're at pattern altitude. Can I turn back? Possibly. Only if I have the airspeed to do so. And that, and that kind of stuff is really, uh, that was baked into me early on in training. And then during my transition, it was baked in again. Yeah, John, you said two things that I really keyed in on. Uh, recon the area. I think that's a great idea. Go go recon your local area because that's going to help you rehearse for those emergency scenarios. Those are two great points. You know, one of the things that uh, we preach in the EAA Flight Advisor Program, uh, which uh, I encourage every home builder to use uh, before they do a first flight in any airplane, but one of the things that we preach in that is to go fly your first flight in another airplane that you have access to. It might be your own airplane, another airplane you own, or a buddy's airplane, but literally fly the exact scenario that you're going to fly on your first flight in another airplane. So I'm going to take off on this runway and do exactly the things that was just discussed. Look for those uh, outs, if you will. Where am I going to go if something happens at this point? What is it going to look like when I get to this altitude and I, and I decide to you know, turn downwind or whatever? And literally think through the entire first flight in your mind and fly that first flight in an airplane that's already tested. That's you know that, so that you know that that all you need to concentrate on is is getting that uh, first flight scenario uh, in your mind and fixing it so that you can you know it's not new to you when you do jump in your brand new airplane and go fly it. Well, guys, you know that that's good for our first flights, but I think if we looked at some of these the Sonics history recently as far as the crashes. It appears to me, as I read it, most of them are out of the uh, pilot's normal operating area. So not necessarily that you can always do that. I mean, I think we still need to learn how to, 
to manage the, the aircraft and, and, and the slow flight regime and the stalls and everything else and and just getting familiar with those kind of aspects as well because we don't always crash in our own airport well gary you, you bring up a good point of complacency um especially some of us that have you know several hundred hours behind our sonics we uh we get a little complacent, but I think some of us, you, me, Jeff, know that when that power drops, we know exactly how to fly our plane to the ground and, and walk away from it. Yeah, so let's, uh, well, let's, let's, let's look into that just a little bit. Um, if you look at the statistics, causes of accidents can be kind of broadly grouped into uh, a pilot problem, you know, pilot miscontrol, pilot judgment, something the pilot's doing or not doing. And that's that's more than half of the accidents right there. And then you have sort of the next subsets, which are some sort of mechanical failure or this kind of undetermined loss of power, which may or may not have a mechanical kind of root. So we, we've been talking a lot about the pilot error, the pilot miscontrol. But what bringing this back to Asonics, what do we think those mechanical failure and power loss failures, uh, what, what can we learn about some of that? Well, Joe, do you have well, um, you know, if you and again, let's let's just take the Sonics out of the picture here for a minute and just look at home built accidents uh, overall. And, uh, you know, over the years, there have been a lot of studies uh, on this and EAA has done a lot of work and got a lot of data. And after pilot miscontrol, for whatever reason, which is, you know, pilot error, if you want to just call it that is number one. The next thing that comes into mind is fuel issues, whether it's fuel starvation or fuel exhaustion, um, whatever it might be, fuel issues on home-built airplanes seem to have a fairly high um, recurrence rate. And that could be something that was designed into the fuel system by the builder. And I've seen some really wonky fuel systems put in home builds. I mean, I've spent many years as a DAR and, and I'm soon to be a DAR again. And why people think they can improve a fuel system after a designer has already designed it, um, I don't know. But it seems to be a place where a lot of people make it a lot more complicated than it has to be. So fuel issues are a very high causal rate in accidents. So one of the things we've got going for us in the Sonics is unless the builder builds something weird into it, the fuel system is pretty darn simple. It's gravity feed, one line, one valve, one carburetor, done. And so we shouldn't be seeing fuel problems uh, in a Sonics design as much as we do in some other designs that have more complicated fuel systems. But I still think fuel can be an issue. I mean, you know, we're 100 plus years into flying airplanes nowadays and people still run out of gas. And uh, that just, you know, how do you, and of course that becomes a pilot error thing. But I think fuel feed issues, whether it's, you know, through a filter or, you know, if there's carb ice involved in certain airplanes or whatever it might be, uh, fuel delivery to the engine to keep the engine running is, is a causal factor that we all need to keep in, in our mind. Yeah, Joe, we, we did a whole show on fuel systems, trying to share some best practices and things to think about. Uh, without going down that road again, I think that the takeaway is that every Sonics builder needs to recognize that there, if, if there's a spot that they're, that they're likely to have problems Odds are that might be it. So you really need to be honest about assessing your fuel system, testing it. Don't assume anything. Go out and test it all. And then be honest if there's a warning sign. Don't overlook it. Don't wish it away. Address it. Exactly. And that's the same with any problem. You know, when you're testing a, a home-built airplane, 
anything that isn't right, there's a reason it isn't right. If it doesn't feel right, if it doesn't sound right, if it doesn't act right, dig into it and find out what's going on because that's the only way it's going to go away. Gary, John, uh, what other mechanical failure trends might we be seeing kind of that are resulting in Sonic's accidents? Well, I'll say that my experience is that it's all fuel systems, either, you know, some sort of a, an induction problem, um, you know, the carburetor not uh, operating properly, the, uh, you know, a mechanical issue of, of the carburetor disconnecting from, you know, the intake or, uh, you know, I think a lot of the problems are induction based, whether it is fuel flow or the carburetion itself. Or airflow. I mean, it could be that the carburetor and the fuel tank and everything's working right, but somebody forgot to tighten a clamp someplace upstream of that or downstream, I guess it would be. And over time, the engine vibrates and all of a sudden one of those, you know, hose connectors slides itself apart and the engine's going to quit because now you don't have an intact intake system anymore. And you just described one of my engine outs. Okay, John. So let, let's uh, let's dig into that. Tell us about that experience. Okay. On uh, New Year's Day, I took my plane out. I've had over – I put a, a Rotec carburetor with a uh, the throttle body, pretty fancy system, um, on my plane over a year ago, over 100 hours on it. Took it out flying. Um, I had an in, a total engine failure about 500 feet off the end of the, the departure. Um, luckily, I was going close to 120 miles an hour and was able to control it. But um, I, it was a carburation problem. I lost fuel flow due to the, the pressure regulator. You know, it was, it, it, it was definitely an induction problem. I, I, when you lose fuel and you have no control over it, you, you land. So, um, that was one of those situations where the training kicks in, you finesse the plane back to the ground and you walk away. Yeah. So John, uh, this is, this is not a, you know, whose carb is better type discussion. This is a, you need to be ready for areas that routinely pop up for whatever reason. And, and right. Yeah, ready and I, I'm not saying that it was a maintenance problem. I'm not saying it was a dis- engineering problem. I'm just saying I had a problem, and you need to anticipate it and be ready for it. Yeah. So one of the things that comes up is, um, you know, the burps. And, you know, there's a lot of kind of opinions about what's causing them and how to address them. Um, that's a whole separate topic. But, again, um, it, it's a recognition that fuel problems definitely have to be anticipated and you do whatever you can up front to eliminate them. But regardless, you need to be ready to handle them because like you said, when the fuel stops flowing, you're coming down. Well, and the, the biggest uh, shocker to me was I was, I had full confidence in my system. I, literally I had a hundred hours in it after full testing and I had no indication that it was going to be a problem, but it was a problem that day. I had a, a manifold system on a Cessna 180 come apart one time after many hours. I mean, so never just because you've got 100 hours since the last time you worked on it or since the last inspection, you're never totally immune. You know, mechanical things find ways to surprise you at times. So you've always got to keep that preparation in your mind. Okay. Uh, any other mechanical trends that we want to just uh, briefly discuss? 
Yeah, I mean, we talk about the aerocarb and aeroinjector being, you know, really simplistic uh, mechanisms, and indeed they are. Uh, but I think that uh, there's there's a lot of potential for missetup and, and um, misadjustment of this device that may not show up until you are actually in flight. Joe hit it really on the head. If you you need to anticipate a problem, and you need to constantly anticipate it. I mean, I was a hundred hours into a perfectly running airplane when it decided to not run for me. But the finesse, and it, it, there is definitely a finesse issue. If you try to manhandle that plane without power in an emergency situation, you're going to end up spinning in the ground. And finessing is key. I mean, I, I, I draw back to um, Sully, you know, when he had the bird strike in that Airbus and put it into the uh, into the Hudson and nobody died. He finessed that plane all the way down. And that that's the 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 role we need to follow. Yeah, so let's uh, let's wrap this up with a uh, a deliberate discussion on the stall spin scenario. So Joe, why don't, why don't you just catch us up? Like, what's the classic setup for a stall spin accident? Um, you know, the accidents that I've been involved with, and I've, I've worked with the NTSB on some uh, accident uh, investigations, both while I was at EAA and with Sonics, and uh, it always comes down to the pilot trying to ask the airplane to do more than the airplane can physically do. And what I'm saying by that is, um, you got to control the airspeed. And yeah, if there's a field out there that you are trying to get to, but you don't have the altitude, you can't keep pulling back on the stick and hoping that it'll get to that field. You've got to fly the wing. You've got to fly that airspeed. You've got to finesse that airplane down to the ground. And if it means going in the trees, you've got to be able to say to yourself, okay, I'm going to save myself and the airplane's repairable. I mean, uh, and I think more people think too much about trying to save the airplane and they forget to save themselves. Yeah. One of the things that, um, that I think it's overlooked is there's a big difference between going out and, and doing stalls in a training environment, doing a slow deceleration, kind of feeling your way and thinking it through. Those are good practice, but don't kid yourself into thinking that that's the way it's going to play out in an emergency. You need to take it to the next level. You need to be ready to handle um, a turning stall where you're really cranking around because you're trying to get lined up with the only landing spot and you're really cranking on the airplane. You need to take it to the next level. You can't stop at the at the normal slow stuff. Here's, here's another point that uh, comes into play when you're going to end up putting the airplane down off the airport somewhere you pick out a field and okay it's a plenty big field and you're going to put the airplane down it looks okay it looks smooth you know you, you figure out if there's any obstacles around as you're starting your initial setup to put that airplane into that field don't aim for what you would consider to be the threshold of the runway aim for the middle of the field you can always get the airplane to come down faster if you need to is side slip flaps whatever but you can't get it to glide farther than it can that it can physically do so give yourself some cushion if you will aim a little bit further down the runway and then when you know you've got that field made then you can bleed off the rest of that altitude maybe by slipping or putting another notch of flaps in or whatever but don't give away any more altitude than you have to give yourself an out 
give yourself a cushion. Uh, I see too many pilots when I'm practicing engine out procedures with them. They'll aim for some little bitty spot or they'll aim for the beginning of a field, you know, and you can't see wires till you get to them. Uh, there's too many things that can happen to you if you don't give yourself that little bit of, of, a, of a margin, a little bit of cushion. And the first place you should look when you're looking for a field is right below the airplane. Because I know I can make it down straight down there. I'll just make circles till I get there. But if you see some field off in the distance, yeah, you don't know for sure if you can make it or not. Don't overestimate the airplane's ability. Always give yourself a cushion. And it'd be nice to get a good look at it on the way down, not, uh, not worrying that you can barely make it. Exactly. Yeah, it just try to make, try to give yourself every advantage in a bad situation to try to take away as much of the bad situation as you can. Gary, we talked about this in our, in our aerobatics, and that's the idea of flying higher, tighter patterns to, to give yourself a little bit of margin to, to work with. So let's, let's go back over that. I think that's, a, that's worth reiterating. Yeah, I thought about that a little bit earlier ago in our discussions, too, and hadn't brought it up again. Uh, when we were talking about that, we also recently noticed, too, that the AOPA put out a, a little blurb that they were working, I believe, with North Dakota on doing a constant turn pattern. Have you seen that, Joe? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's uh, been con uh, discussed uh, quite a few safety seminars I've been to. Rather than flying a, a base or, you know, a downwind, a base, and a final, um, you just make it an arc. You know, keep that field in sight all the time and just always know that you can make it into that field at any point. Since I've started my Sonics, I have just naturally fallen into that, believe it or not. And I thought it was kind of interesting when I saw that AOP starting to talk about this. You know what? I've already been doing that. And I found that it, I think it depends on the aircraft, certainly. But I find that with you the know, Sonic, it just works out ideally. Gary, uh, following you into a pattern, I thought you were just sloppy. <laughs> thank you. Hey, I'm, I'm going to throw something out there. Um, I think that when it comes to uh, a Sonics, there are two groups that have a distinct advantage in their background. And one is sailplane pilots because sailplane pilots naturally want to stay within gliding distance of the runway. It's just bred into you. And ultralight pilots. Ultralight pilots are traumatized from, from early experience to anticipate engine failures all the time and, and to fly where you can set it down. And that those kind of survival instincts uh, really set you up for success. Well, I would, what I'm trying to say is I would encourage our Sonics pilots to start thinking about it and, and actually give it a try so that when you do your upwind leg, when you, as you lift off and you start turning, don't do the square patterns. Just make a continuous 180-degree turn uh, from upwind to downwind and then do another 180-degree turn from downwind to base. Stay closer to pattern altitude, keep it up there, and come down a little bit more steeper approach. But as you look out that Sonics, you're going to find wow, the sight picture and visibility and the, the environmental that you, the, I'm sorry, the, the, the sight picture you can get in the entire field too is stellar, absolutely stellar. Uh, and you get a much better situational awareness rather than trying to drag these things in for a couple of miles and not see what's happening on the field. So stay higher, stay close, like a quarter mile, do 180 degree turns from, from upwind to downwind and downwind to, to, to final. And just see what you think about it. You may or may not like it, but I found in the Sonics, I just naturally did it. Yep, I tried to teach everybody that flew with me to always be able to see the runway, whether it's out the side or over the nose. If you can't see the runway over the nose when you turn final, you're either too far out or too high or something's wrong. You should be able to see the runway all the way down until you flare the airplane. It just If you're not doing that, um, you're probably doing something that you shouldn't be in the Sonics. 
There might be one more thing, too, with people transitioning to Sonics from other aircraft. Um, you know, as a previous instructor, and unfortunately I was not still doing it, but I almost think we should get rid of the word flare personally. Um, to me, that's always envisioned or had a connotation that you had to do some kind of a perfect timing maneuver to get the wheels where you wanted to. I would really just recommend that we start telling people, you level off, you just level off. And once you do that, even if you're high or, or anything else, you'll have more time to make the final adjustments that you need to rather than trying to get down to that, that magical two or three feet you know, and, and do some wild gyrations and a flare to get to the perfect pitch attitude. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think a lot of people in all their flying tend to overdo that initial you know, I, I always said it was, there's three, you know, there's the, there's the descent coming down and then there's the round out, which is what you're talking about, the level off. And then there's the actual flare is the very last thing you do just before the wheels touch down. It's not all one maneuver. It's like three steps you're doing there. Yeah, um, but I think it, as instructors, if we just start telling people, just, just concentrate on leveling off, I think the rest of it will become a little bit more instinctive and a little bit smoother after that point. That's a good point. I will say, though, watching Gary land is my inspiration to be a better pilot because he always lands short without brakes, and it's awesome. Thank you. That's because the hound dog doesn't like to work any harder than he needs to. Well, I think it's because his plane is so slow. (laughs) (laughs) Oh! (laughs) Joe, but he always fails to mention I always get there first. There you go. <laughs> yeah, when I'm in the pattern, um, I, I really do, Gary, I'm with you. I, I really do like to do the continuous turn to final. Um, it just it feels very natural. you got good visibility. And, and I always ask myself, at any point in the pattern, can I make it back to the runway? I don't want to be hanging out in that corner, you know, turning downwind to base and look over at the runway and say, you know what? If the, my engine quit right now, I'm going in the trees. I can't make it back. That's a terrible place to be. You want to avoid that spot. Yeah, if you're a mile and a half out, you, you're never going to make it. Yep, that's exactly right. All right, let's boil this down to a couple of key points and takeaways that we want to leave people with. And, uh, Joe, I'm going to kick it over to you to kind of start us off. What do you think your main key takeaways that people need to come away with? I think it's just concentration on uh, air cr- basic flying skills. I mean, I think that's going to that's going to serve you well, no matter if you're flying a Sonics or if you're flying a Cherokee or if you're flying a 747. Um, basic flying skills. Learn what the airplane's doing and learn what you have to do to make it do what you want it to do. You're not a passenger in the airplane. You're the pilot of the airplane. You know what the airplane's capabilities are. Now let's go out and get the, the airplane to perform to that level. So I think that's really, it's just, it just comes down to practice, experience, and a mindset that puts you in a place where you just always ask yourself to fly the airplane uh, with some level of precision rather than just out for a joyride. I think if you just, I find that enjoyable. And I think everybody should find some enjoyment in being, you know, in control of the airplane so that they can make the airplane do what it's supposed to do. Slow flight, stalls, pattern work. I don't care what it is. Basic aircraft skills are something that people don't spend enough time practicing. And I think that every pilot could improve themselves if they just spent some more time on that. Yeah, excellent. Uh, John, what do you think? Well, I think the big takeaway is um, when you get into a situation that is un, that you're not 
you know, that's not typical. Your engine just quit on takeoff. Um, you need to finesse the plane and, and really, like, like Joe said, push the nose down. Keep the plane flying. If you have the time to troubleshoot the problem, great. If you don't, you're going to land. And if you land it, okay, you may not land it where you want it, and you may not have a plane you can go and fly again. But, um, you know, if, if, you, if you start muscling that plane around or uh, panicking, uh, it's not going to turn out well for you. Okay, yeah, well said. Uh, Gary? Well, unfortunately, I think I'm just about talked out. I don't think I have any other great pearls or, or wisdom bits to pass on other than just, you know, go out there and do the things that you're not comfortable with until you get comfortable. Yeah. Well, and, and for me, uh, I'm going to reiterate your point, Gary. Get comfortable in slow flight and stalls. It pays off in so many areas. It's probably one of the best things you can do on a recurrent basis. If you do nothing else, that's going to make you money. Use aerobatics as an opportunity to improve your skills. We talked all about this in the aerobatics show. It's going to force you to be disciplined. It's going to take your level of precision, and it's going to instill confidence. And then use that training to build that trained response. You can't be thinking about what's the right thing to do in the heat of the moment. It's just not going to happen the way you would think it will. That cliche you know, saying about you don't rise to the occasion you sink to the lowest level of your training. It's absolutely true. I've seen it over and over again. You have to anticipate this in advance. You have to train for it so that you have something to fall back on because you're not going to figure it out on the fly. Stay within gliding distance of the runway if you have a choice, and sometimes you don't. But as a, as a course of action, yeah, stay within gliding distance. Think to yourself, what am I going to do right now if the engine quits? Where am I going? Can I get back to my landing spot? Uh, and especially in the pattern, it's just too easy to do it. And then lastly, think through your emergency situations. Spend some time in the airplane, get comfortable with it, all that kind of stuff. But really think through, what am I going to do under very specific responses? In your first flight, think it through. In your aerobatics prep, think it through. And then in your emergency sort of engine out situation, think that stuff through. Um, it will pay off when you need to pull it out and use it. This is the idea behind, you know, studying your checklists. You study your checklists so you're familiar with them so that you don't have to go find the emergency checklist in an emergency and try to work it. It's already ingrained. It's part of that trained response. All right, Joe, I'm going to kick it back to you for some final thoughts, and then I think we're going to close this one out. All right, thanks. Well, I just want to uh, say once again that I really appreciate uh you having me on the program tonight. I think this is a great topic. Um, I want to see people fly safely, whether they're flying Sonics or, or whatever airplane they fly. And I think, uh, you know, just go out and fly the airplane to its capabilities, get some uh, remedial training if you think you need it, or even if you don't think you need it, it can't hurt you. Um, you know, and work some of those unusual situations of, you know, what happens if uh, one fuel tank won't feed and the other one will? What do you do? What happens? You know, all kinds of different situations that could occur um, that people just don't think about. So I think it just, you know, as pilots, we owe it to ourselves and to our passengers and to the people we're flying over for that matter to just, you know, spend some time thinking about those scenarios that you hope never happen. And just like you say, think it through what am I going to do and how am I going to do it? And just practice that once in a while, even if it's just in your chair flying, 
anytime you spend with your mind wrapped around those uh, unusual situations is going to end up paying you dividends down the road. So just, you know, fly safely and practice uh, some things other than just, you know, flying to the flying breakfast and back. All right. Well, thanks, Joe. Uh, I'm going to leave us off with, um, I'm going to throw a couple of challenges out to the Sonics community. Um, first up, we probably need, as a group, we probably need to continue this discussion about really getting into the details of, of recent Sonics accidents and trying to pull out those lessons learned. Um, is it construction and setup related? Is it pilot technique related? Is it something that we're seeing that we can put our finger on and really use it to drill down into the areas we need to practice? So for someone out there, I think that it would be outstanding to do a really detailed look at the accidents and really with the, the goal of identifying those trends so that we can come up with a, with a plan of attack to, uh, to address those through training or through you know, set up, things like that. And then those are things that we're definitely going to want to share with the community. The right personality who can methodically analyze the data and, and write it up, that would make a fantastic article to send over to the Sonics Builders and Pilots Foundation. Don't post it to an internet forum. Don't send it in an email. Uh, we need a deliberate, well-thought-out analysis. So do it send those in to the to the foundation and uh, and let's really make a good reference that we can use amongst the community to keep this thing going and then the second challenge that i'm going to throw out there is go out and and do some of these things that we've been talking about go fly with an instructor go do some aerobatics practice go out and practice slow flight stall spins go out and recreate for yourself in a safe way go recreate the setup for a stall spin accident, turn in base to final, or trying to do the impossible turn. Go out and do that and video it, and then take a like a one-minute clip, and let's consolidate these one-minute little tips that everybody's doing on how to do a stall properly, um, demonstrate a stall spin setup, and, and uh, do a recovery. Do, just do a one-minute clip that you think would be a benefit to share something that you went out there and deliberately practiced, and you're going to share it with everybody else. We'll take all these clips, we'll consolidate them, and we'll put them together in a, in, in a short video. If there's a volunteer out there who wants to kind of consolidate and run that, I think we'd have a really interesting sort of training primer that can get people thinking about things to do with their instructor to increase their own level of proficiency. So go out there, fly one of those scenarios, video it, and send us a good clip. So there's my challenges to the community. Let's go out there and, and get these things done. All right, so putting that all behind us, um, I got a couple of quick shout-outs. First up, the uh, the Centex Sonics group, their fly-out is coming up quick, and that's the Big Bend State Park trip. That's uh, March 31st to April 2nd, and that is right around the corner. Mike Singleton says that there's going to be 8 to 12 or possibly more Sonics arriving for that and a whole bunch of people. They've got some fun excursions planned. It's going to be a, a neat thing. And then secondly, uh, Sun and Fun is right after that, uh, April 4th through the 9th. And uh, I'm going to be out there. Gary's planning on joining me, and we're going to have an outstanding Sun and Fun show. We're going to be camping there. So come on out to Sun and Fun and come hang out with Gary and I and bring beer. That's what I was going to say. Bring the beer, bud. <laughs> so I'm really looking forward to that. I am so ready for a good fly, and it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. Crossing my fingers for the weather. Joe, are you going to come down and uh, hang out at Sun and Fun? Uh, unfortunately, I don't think I'm going to be down there this year. It doesn't look like my EAA duties uh, include a trip to Sun and Fun this year, so I'm going to be hanging out up here being jealous of you guys down there having fun. 
Well, um, I'm not saying that we're going to rub it in, but we're probably going to rub it in. So, eh, well, all right. I probably deserve that, but I'll be having <laughs> some fun here too. So I'm not going to complain too loudly. All right. Well, good deal. Uh, I think we'll, we're going to wrap this one up. Uh, our next show, uh, episode one, eight, we may sneak a topic in before we're going to sun and fun or the next time might be sitting around the campfire, uh, there at sun and fun. So we'll, we'll just kind of see how it goes. We do have a couple of topics, uh, queued up. So we'll try and work those in. You can find us on the web at sonicsflight.com. You can find the show notes for this episode at sonicsflight.com slash one seven. You can listen to the show directly off the website uh, or download it for later. But again, the easiest way is to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes or Google Play uh, or whatever your favorite podcast app. And then you'll automatically get the show and have it ready to listen to and all that. I like to just queue up a bunch of podcasts and play them on my phone uh, when I'm out at the hangar work. And so that's a great way to kind of stay connected with uh, what everybody else is up to. And then lastly, uh, send us a note, uh, send us an email. You can find a link to our email on the website, or you can just send us uh, an email at feedback at sonicsflight.com. Let us know what, what you're thinking. Uh, give us feedback on this episode or any of our past episodes. And if you have something you'd like us to cover, send us a note and tell us what you think that would be. Uh, encourage anybody to, uh, to reach out. And if you think uh, you've got a, uh, a great guest idea, pitch that to us. Or if you want to come and talk about something that you think you could, you could provide a unique perspective on, definitely reach out to us. We want to, we want to get all those guests lined up. So, so lastly, uh, once again, uh, I want to thank Joe Norris for his comments and his insight. Joe, it was a pleasure speaking with you and I look forward to seeing you up at Oshkosh at the show. Absolutely. Uh, again, I really appreciate uh, you guys having me on. I enjoyed the discussion, and I always look forward to listening to the podcast. There's always some good information out there, and we got a great community in the Sonics community, and we want to keep that information flowing. So you're doing a great job, and I, I appreciate that. All right, and to everybody else, uh, fly safely. Good night. Good night, guys. Good night. Views and opinions expressed on the Sonic Select podcast are those of the hosts and guests alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of any individual, company, or organization mentioned on this program. Nothing presented on this podcast should be construed to be the official position or recommendation of anyone not directly associated with Sonic's Flight. Anything that sounds like advice should be carefully considered before being implemented. Remember, you are the pilot in command. Gary is a longtime pilot, a former CFI, and has more than 500 hours on his Aero V powered Sonics. And uh, Gary, why do we uh, keep going down on that number, by the way. What's that? <laughs> why do we keep going down on the numbers? But that's okay. Well, that's because I'm not getting regular progress updates. So, okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> so Gary is a longtime pilot with more than 600 hours on his Aero V Sonics. Better. <laughs> okay. Good. Gary, uh, how many hours did you add this past weekend? Uh, unfortunately, zero because of the wind. Gary is a longtime pilot with more than 500 hours in his Aero V. <laughs>
I see. <laughs> time, time deducts from time not flying. I got it. Yeah, you're only <laughs> as good as your last flight, so your stock is going down. Yeah. Gary flies so slow, he only gets 0. .7 hours for every hour he flies. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I can't top that one. That was that 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 hurt right there. 